Let's pray again together. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for the privilege of belonging to you through faith in Jesus Christ and being used by you as his people. Remind us today that you alone are worthy of our complete devotion, the full commitment of our lives. Cause us to worship you with our hearts, our actions, our thoughts, and our speech. And Lord, teach us to be your people of healthy discernment. In Christ's name, amen. So speaking of discernment, in your regular day-to-day lives, in our regular day-to-day lives, we're constantly making decisions. Should I go this way? Should I go that way? Is this a good choice? Is this the best choice? Is this something that I ought to avoid? You know that you, you have to practice this all the time. And that's going to be the focus in our text this morning. But I also want to remind you as we approach Acts 16 that there are are three things, three helpful reminders about the context of where we are now in Acts 16. So this is the recent context. Number one, remember the recent decision of the Jerusalem Council and the letter written to disseminate that conclusion. In Acts chapter 15, that was the primary theme there. There was a major concern that some Judaizers were uh, claiming that Gentiles needed to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. And the clear conclusion was that that is not the case. Circumcised or uncircumcised, we are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. And now there were also then some recommendations for how Gentile believers might fellowship well with Jewish believers who are, in fact, located uh, in many places. So that, that one thing, that decision and letter is a major factor in this context. And then two, remember that Paul and Barnabas just parted ways because they discerned differently concerning John Mark about whether or not to bring him along, and they're unable to reach an agreement other than an agreement to separate into two teams. And then finally, Paul and Silas now set out on Paul's second missionary journey. First, they take the message of the letter to its intended audience, which is beyond just the church in Antioch, to the other Gentile believers in Syria and Cilicia. And as they continue their journey, which covers a lot of ground, literally, in our text today, there's a lot of ground and a lot of time that is covered, and a couple of important members joining the team Timothy and Luke. The theme, though, that holds together verses 1 through 10 of Acts 16 is discernment, situational discernment and spiritual discernment, meaning discerning the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So as we read the verses then, listen and look for discernment and action as the part, on the part of Paul and his missionary teammates. This is Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 10. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, 
who was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for, a, for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Now we come to the second half, a, a different type of discernment taking place here. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. In order for a narrative section where we see discernment in action to hit its mark, it's helpful for us to have a working understanding of what discernment is. So let's quickly define discernment by way of introduction. Fundamentally, discernment means to have a sound judgment, and a sound judgment which allows us to distinguish right from wrong and to recognize beyond right from wrong, to recognize the right ways of God for his people. Biblical discernment in our Christian parlance and our regular usage tends to mean recognizing falsehood to not be taken in by it, and it means having a sound judgment to make good, godly choices. So in that vein, here's what Sinclair Ferguson writes. This is a really helpful definition, I find. True discernment means not only distinguishing the right from the wrong, it means distinguishing the primary from the secondary, the essential from the indifferent, and the permanent from the transient. You know, the new song that our praise team taught you today is to focus on that which is eternal. Things will come into perspective in eternity when we see Christ. And yes, it means distinguishing between the good and the better, and even between the better and the best. So with that working definition of the common theme in these verses, let's see how discernment plays out in action in the first verses, first in verses one through five, discerning when situational accommodation is appropriate. Now, the first aim of this missionary journey is to revisit the believers in cities where they had previously proclaimed the word of God. That's what we heard Paul and Barnabas planning for in the end of Acts chapter 15, verse 36. So that's what we find them doing. Now, here's a map for you. I, what I've put for you on screen is a map that reasonably approximates Paul and, and the team's second missionary journey. Right now, we're focused just on the beginning of that trip, which leaves from Antioch in Syria to, to get your bearings there. That's just north of Israel, north of Palestine, as it's labeled on the map. Leaving from Antioch in Syria, they travel through 
other places in Syria and Cilicia, and then on to Derbe, and then to Lystra and Iconium. Now in Lystra, there's a younger disciple named Timothy. Evidently, he and his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, we learn this in 2 Timothy 1.5 in a pastoral letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, we find out that they had become believers most likely on the previous missionary journey to Lystra. And if you're following along with us in Acts, that happened in Acts chapter 14. That's probably when they became believers. Timothy is already, in our text, he's well-known, or he's already known, and he's well-spoken of by the brothers and sisters in Lystra and Iconium, that city just to the north of Lystra. Both Acts and the Pauline epistles will bear out that Timothy becomes no small player in Paul's life or in the life of the early church. Timothy is somebody really significant. If you were just to cross-reference the number of times Timothy is mentioned, you'd find a great number of them. But before all of that comes to fruition, here we have the incident where Timothy first becomes a member of the team. Paul strongly desired for Timothy to accompany them. He, sees, he finds this younger believer. He sees so much potential for this young man to be mentored and to grow in ministry. He wants him to come along. So he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, in the cities that they're journeying through, verse 4. Most of the cities had a large enough Jewish contingent to have a synagogue, which we know is true of that city just north of Lystra, Iconium, In chapter 14, verse 1, we heard that there was a synagogue there. Most of these cities are big enough, and they have a lot of Jews, and there's actually a synagogue there. So clearly, we're to understand that Paul did this, and Timothy agreed to it because of the Jews, to make it easier to relate to Jews, to have a a good relationship with the Jews in those places. Now, you're probably asking yourself, and we should, right after the decision was made in Jerusalem that circumcision was not necessary for salvation, we might be left wondering why Paul would do this. That Paul does so is a matter of discernment is the best explanation. Thinking about the situation holistically actually helps us perceive why Paul would have drawn the conclusion to circumcise Timothy. First, they had already and were continuing to make it clear in their communication, again, see verse 4, they're traveling, making known the decision of the Jerusalem council that they had agreed that circumcision was by no means salvific. That is being made clear. And then remember, too, this might be the thing that helps you the most make a comparison between the decision that Paul made with Titus and the decision that he made with Timothy. Remember that in the situation with Titus, who was a full Gentile, they did not circumcise him in order to be clear that he did not need to become a Jew in order to be saved. That's Galatians 2, 3 through 5. Timothy, on the other hand, had a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. This intermarriage between a a Jew and a Greek, would have already offended the most pious Jews. Um, And it's known to them that such was Timothy's heritage, for they all knew that his father was a Greek at the end of verse 3 in our text. 
So how could Paul and Timothy do their best to make this as much of a non-issue, a non-distraction from the most important message of the gospel, especially for the Jews? Timothy can show his, his cultural commitment to his Jewish heritage on his mother's side by circumcision, which is what Paul discerned as the wisest course of action. Out of respect for the Jews, Timothy, who would certainly be considered an ethnic Jew, clarifies his social ethnic status so as to not create a distraction for the gospel, gospel advance among the Jews. The Gentiles won't care because they expect a cultural Jew to be a cultural Jew. But it would matter to the Jews. So to make this be a non-issue, Timothy is circumcised. So it's necessary to understand that this is, it is an accommodation to Jewish sensibilities, but it's not a capitulation on a theological issue. The Jews could be cultural Jews and the Gentiles could be cultural Gentiles. All are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Paul discerned that this missionary accommodation was appropriate because it was a situational cultural issue that had no theological bearing on whether or not Timothy was already saved. By circumcising Timothy in order to bring him along with the team, Paul was removing an unnecessary barrier to the gospel among the Jews. Luke concludes this matter with another of his patented statements in Acts on the providential work of God and the progress of the gospel and growth of Christ's church in verse 5. It's almost like he's saying, because of this discerning decision, and because Silas and Paul continue to spread the decision that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem, by resolving doctrinal and practical issues, the churches were strengthened and stayed focused on the gospel so that they increased in numbers daily. One way for us to think about how to apply what we're seeing in action here is to consider how we weigh our convictions and practice our convictions. By conviction, I don't mean a formal declaration that someone is guilty of a criminal offense. No, I'm using conviction in the other sense of its meaning, which is a firmly held belief or opinion. Conviction meaning a firmly held belief or a firmly held opinion. Discernment, then, includes weighing which convictions are less central and which convictions are less certain. Then we will know when it's okay and to what degree we can compromise and still have a clear conscience. Admittedly, that's challenging because we don't always agree on where the boundaries are, do we? I'm, I'm thinking it's okay for me to... to submit or, or compromise on this issue, and, and you might not be feeling the same way. And when that happens, we give one another space to differ, to disagree, or where we need to agree or where agreement is, is helpful, then we do try to reach some kind of consensus with the people that we're striving side by side together in the gospel. Let's turn now to our second example of discernment in action, which is less situationally and culturally determined and more spiritually discerned, meaning discerning the Spirit's leading in specific circumstances. Twice in this section, we're told that they are prevented from going some way 
That would have been a logical next step. In fact, it's probably what they desired to do. The reason we're being told that they are, are convinced by the Spirit not to do this and by the Spirit of Jesus not to do this is because it's probably the most logical next step or it's what they had planned. We're not told precisely how, but in verses 6 and 7, they are both forbidden or, or not allowed by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. And that uncommon phrase, spirit of Jesus, I think is, is a reminder from Luke that it's Christ himself who has given us the indwelling spirit. We don't know if, if each of these was specifically revealed by a prophetic revelation from one of the team members, or if they just prayed together for direction. I, I'm thinking probably a combination of both. They, they undoubtedly prayed together for direction, and maybe one or more of them had some kind of clear conviction from the Spirit that now was not the time to preach in Asia Minor, or then the next time up north in Bithynia. And obediently, it sounds like they passed through Mysia without stopping to preach, but headed straight to Troas. In God's providence, this prohibition of going into these areas is only temporary, it's only a temporary pause in advancing the gospel in that region because we know that yet on this same trip, if you're looking at this map, they will still reach other parts of Asia Minor with the gospel. In fact, from a New Testament context, we, we believe that when they come around to Ephesus, they stay there for as many as three years before returning to Jerusalem and then to Antioch. Notice particularly, pause here for a second after verses six through eight. Notice particularly that up to this point, they didn't have any clear revelation of what they ought to do next, just what they were not to do. We experience this reality in our own lives, don't we? Sometimes when we pray, God just doesn't give us peace about a certain direction, and we're left to obediently abandon it, at least for now, and without knowing what to do instead. We just don't have peace about this direction, and we need to submit. Don't do that. For example, maybe you, as a younger woman, or not even a, that young of a woman necessarily, come to the realization that a certain guy you've had interest in is just not someone you should commit to marrying. Perhaps he, he doesn't demonstrate the spiritual maturity of a man who is growing in the ways that he might one day be an elder in the church. By the way, I just snuck that in as a criteria for your consideration there, young ladies, <laughs> and for something that you younger men need to be aspiring to. You've ended one relationship, but you don't just have another potential husband waiting in the wings. This isn't a stupid bachelorette show. So what do we do? We patiently wait on the Lord to know if his desire is for us to remain single or if he's providing another direction. Both of those options are still good when we follow God's direction. He knows what is best for us. So for Paul and company, listening obediently to the no's and the not now's, which undoubtedly would have taken some time, there's a lot of patience here. And waiting for God's leading 
does in fact, in this case, yield an abundantly clear revelation in time, in God's timing. Paul has a dream vision in verse 9 of a man in Macedonia urging them to come over and help us. It sounds like uh, save. In verse 10, when Paul tells the vision to his team, they immediately conclude together that this means they are to go there and preach the gospel. Just a passing comment here. I would like to note that all visions, in the, all visions in the New Testament are obviously visions. If a person were to have a vision, they shouldn't have to wonder if it was from God or just an unusual dream. Either way, you should be able to test such a thing like a dream by God's word and his people. I'll come back to that a little bit later. John Stott points out how this narrative example that we have here in, in verses 6 to 10 is, is helpful to us because it has the elements that often characterize divine guidance. It has God's use of a period of time. This took time. The circumstances of open and closed doors are closed doors and then open doors. It has pondering what was taking place, actually thinking through, what does this mean? What is it that, that God is doing here? And seeking response and input from others in pursuit of a kind of corporate wisdom. I agree with John Stott that we see that helpful dynamic in, in action in these verses. And we'll make more of this practically for our own lives in concluding application in, in just a moment. Briefly, though, before I move on to that, here are two additional noteworthy points from verse 10. One more time, here's the map. This patient obedience for the missionary team leads to the gospel going forth to a whole new region where it has not yet been proclaimed in Macedonia. That's one great benefit here. Paul is able to circle back to Asia Minor, but now the gospel goes to a whole new section that it has not yet gone. And then secondly, evidently it's here in the area of Troas where the author of, of this theological narrative joins up with the traveling band. It says, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia to preach the gospel. To the reader of Luke's writings, Luke and Acts, this would have been an additional confirmation of, of the truthfulness of what he says, firsthand eyewitness testimony. Not, not only does he say that he has done careful research into these things and he's quoting people who have eyewitness testimony, but no, he himself was there with Paul. Now, after looking closely at these two examples, verses 1 through 5 and then 6 through 10, both of them of, of discernment and action from the Apostle Paul and his missionary team, one involving sensitivity to a given context, cultural context, and another involving being sensitive to specific guidance from the Holy Spirit in their missionary endeavor, we can conclude with some additional thoughts Maybe I'll say it like this, from, from the whole counsel of God to help us as we ourselves practice discernment, trying to, to develop a discernment that is situationally sensitive, a discernment that is spiritually sensitive, sensitive to how God might be giving us specific guidance in the circumstances in our lives. Well, first, we really do need to be clear that spiritual things are not discernible to one who has not been reborn 
of the Spirit to faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church this, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, talking about those who now, because of faith in Christ, are bearers of the gospel. We are his ambassadors. And he says, not now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit of who is from God, that we might understand the things he has freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And listen to verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The point there is to say that if you don't have spiritual life through faith in Jesus Christ, if you remain spiritually dead and an object of the wrath of God, you do not hear, you do not listen to, you do not understand the voice of the shepherd because he is not your master. The call then, the response that these guys are literally about, what they are doing is traveling and around and telling people, God has made provision for you to be restored to him through Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for your sin, and he rose again to conquer sin and death and Satan to prove that he is the eternal king of the universe, and that through faith in him, you can have spiritual life and be made right with God. And he will give you the indwelling spirit to seal you as a child of God and then to be your guide. But without that, we're talking about things that you're still kind of on the outside looking in. And that's a sad place to be. Not just now, we will all be humbled when we see his face. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You will either do it before the judgment, or you will do it at least at the judgment, but still reap the consequences of not repenting to Christ today while it is still today. However, we Christians should be continually growing in Christ-like discernment. Another quote from Sinclair Ferguson on this topic in the context of following Christ's own example of perfect discernment, he says, so discernment is learning to think God's thoughts after him, practically and spiritually. It means having a sense of how things look in God's eyes and seeing them in some measure uncovered and laid bare the way that God sees them, Hebrews 4, 13. So it's judging rightly based on seeing as God sees and thinking and acting and, and speaking accordingly. So I want to I conclude this morning with some practical biblical suggestions toward that end of growing in Christ-like discernment. Number one, know the word of God. Know the word of God. Search the Bible. This is God's authoritative communication to us. It's absurd to seek the will of God apart from the word of God. It's absurd to seek the will of God apart from the word of God. Also, we can, we can rest assured, as we've said several times in Acts, 
we can rest assured that God the Holy Spirit won't contradict his own infallible and authoritative word in the Bible. The consistency of God's character makes that an impossibility. And then, discernment of this type necessarily means that we must give one another a little space for difference, yes, but we must also guard against that which runs outside the boundaries of scriptural principle or twists scripture for its own purposes. Sometimes, there may be issues where we don't know for certain or we agree to disagree about a conviction. It's a lesser conviction, and that's okay. But there are a great number of things that are clear in God's word. And unfortunately, sometimes those who call themselves evangelical Christians even are simply using God's word as a means to say what they think or what they want it to say. Or they will just bypass certain things that God says altogether. But we trust that God says things a certain way because he actually knows what is best. What is best for you is what God says is best for you. So know the word of God. Secondly, pray frequently and fervently. Pray frequently and fervently for discernment and pray for God's sovereign will to be done. First of all, that pray, praying for discernment, James says in James 1 verses 5 and 6, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. In other words, if we will know the word of God and pray according to the will of God, he will grant you wisdom. And then Jesus also taught, praying, uh, as I said, pray for God's sovereign will to be done. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. And then Christ himself gave us the example as he prayed in agony in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Not, not the human desire of Jesus, but the sovereign decree of God from before time that the Son would give himself up as an atonement for our sin. But he would rise again to prove his unique position as perfect priest and all-powerful king of the universe. God has given us not only his word and prayer, but he has also given us fellow Christians who submit to his word. And they're... they're we have one another for our protection and benefit. So seek counsel and listen well. Seek counsel and listen well. Don't blame the Holy Spirit for your whims. Be cautious of, I felt God telling me. If you think you feel that way, do three things. First, check God's word for the balance of scripture, as we said, and then pray according to God's word, and then this third one, seek the input from trusted biblical advisors, from shepherds, from peers who submit to the authority of God's word and whom you feel like you can trust. In other words, don't talk to the people who will tell you what you want to hear. Talk to those who will genuinely listen, think, and tell the truth. 
Those are true friends. In a good way, and this is what you want or you should want, this input from others will result in confirmation or correction. That's what you want, isn't it? Trusted biblical counsel should bring either confirmation or correction to your feelings about the Spirit's leading. Fourthly, know thyself. Know yourself. If you find it necessary to state and defend, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw two comparisons here, telling you that we tend to be two different types of people. So know yourself. If you find it necessary to state and defend nearly everything with equal conviction, take care that you're not simply opinionated and combative. A fool delights in airing his own opinions, says the Proverbs. But if you find yourself, if you find that you hold very few convictions firmly, then you will be blown about by different winds of doctrine. Or you might capitulate to others as a people pleaser. That's me. I'm a peacemaker. I have to know myself and know where to stand firm. And some of us like Fight on every hill. <laughs> we need to know ourselves. And fifthly, follow Jesus. Put the good of others before your own preferences and even freedoms. And I dare say lesser convictions. Follow the example of Jesus. We are quite literally Christ's people, Christians. We do well to learn when and, and why to overturn the tables in the temple, and when and why to eat with tax collectors and sinners. Like Paul, an apostle and devoted Christ follower, we do well to know when to make sure we are standing firm on theological convictions so as not to compromise the gospel, and, but also when to be situationally accommodating because it just isn't worth letting such things be a distraction or, or a cause for division. You realize that even when you join a local church, that church has a culture. That's just how it is. So like Paul and his teammates, we do well in various situations and, and decisions to listen attentively for the Holy Spirit's guidance confirming it within God's revealed will in the scriptures and confirming it with a ministry team made up of other Christians who evidence by their lives that they submit to God's authority. Above all, we must trust that God's way is best. So we seek his way and not our own. Remember, there will come a day where everything that we're doing in this life will be evaluated according to God's way. We should live our lives knowing that everything is open and laid bare before him. His way is best. Let's submit to it. Pray with me again as the praise team returns. Father God, you have been so gracious We didn't deserve or merit for you to create this unbelievable earth that you made for your own glory. We, we don't deserve for you to, to bring us into being, each individual human who lives and knows that we have life. 
We don't deserve even, even more because of our, our sin and our waywardness and our rebelliousness turning from you. We don't deserve for you to rescue us through Jesus Christ. And yet in your perfect and sovereign plan, in, in a, a perfect revelation of your perfect love, you gave Jesus to die on a cross for our sins and to rise again. We thank you for the conviction of your Holy Spirit so that we flee from sin and self and we run in faith to Jesus. Father God, we do pray. We, we know that there are so many situations in our lives in which we need discernment. Help us to seek principle from your word, to pray fervently, to seek the counsel of those around us. Help us to be wise and discerning. And may we desire above all to do things your way for your glory. In Christ's name we ask, amen. What amazing comfort, what amazing confidence to know that the finish line is closer today than it was yesterday. To know that the perfect consummation of God through Jesus Christ is just around the corner. But in the meantime, we're also reminded that because God has already made us his children, He's called us to be holy, to be set apart to him. We're also reminded today that he's called us to be his rescue workers. He is still making a people for his possession. There are yet others to trust in Christ, and you might get to be an instrument of his grace to be involved in that. So as we go be the church dispersed, remember that we've been called to be holy, and we've been called to be instruments of Christ to rescue others. Let's pray in closing. Father God, again, we, we are aware that we don't get to take credit for any of this that you are doing, and yet we are so blessed that we are caught up in it. You have made us your own children, your citizens, your soldiers. Help us to draw near to you, God, to abide in our Savior so that we will be committed to holiness and committed to to living and speaking the truth of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May you alone be glorified today, this week, and forever. Amen.